0: Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Okay, friends, let's get out our Bibles if we can. So you can open up your Bible to the Old Testament. That's the first part in the book of Psalms. Now, good friends of ours, they are very experienced hikers. They've hiked almost all of the major routes in South Africa. But a couple of years ago, they were out um, in the Western Cape on our route, and they were about to cross a river, but this river had pushed over its bank because of a flash thunderstorm, and as they were in the middle of this body of water, suddenly the water started pulling away two of these three friends of ours, and it was a massive struggle to actually get these two guys back onto the riverbanks, and they almost drowned. It was a massively traumatic moment for them, so a river has the potential to be incredibly destructive and dangerous. At the same time, there's also another aspect of what a river can be. I was at a wedding yesterday for a couple in Dr. Hatfield, and this was literally right next to the, the venue. As you're sitting there listening, you can, you can see this kind of lazy river just going by, and it's so calming. It's, it's so peaceful. Just seeing this body of water just moving like this, it's this therapeutic thing. So my question is, what's the difference between the dangerous potential that a river has and this calming, beautiful potential that it has? And the answer is, it's the banks of the river. It's the banks of the river. You see, when a river pushes over its banks, it becomes destructive. But when it stays, it's guided in wisdom by its banks. It's the light to our souls. And can I tell you that that is exactly how our emotions work? That's exactly how human emotions work. When human emotions are guided by wisdom, they are this delightful thing. But when we allow them to push over our banks and rule over us, they become this destructive thing. Now, why is that important? Because guess what? Hello, 2020 was an emotion-filled year. Amen? Just want to get those masks working again. Amen? So it's been an emotion-filled year. I'm sure you will agree and the question now is, as a church, how do we handle all of this baggage that's built up inside this year? I don't know what your specific story is, but I know there's a story. And what do we do with that? Where do we go with that in December? And the answer we've now been saying for Dr. David Hatfield, as we are building up to replanting uh, in 2021, is to reflect Is to reflect to say, listen, we've been doing some practical reflection in this taking stock series, but now we want to get to some emotional and spiritual reflection. We want to deal with all these things that are sticking to us at the end of the year. And I want to say there is no better way to deal with those things than the book of Psalms. If you're a Christian, there is no better way to wrestle with the things going on internally than the book of Psalms, because the book of Psalms is raw and it's honest. And for centuries, the Christian church has used the songbook of the church to wrestle with God, to bring the good and the bad and the ugly of life before God. And that's exactly what we want to do. So back to our river analogy for a second here. You see, some people think that if you are religious, if you're a Christian, if you're spiritual, then the way you handle your emotions is by not handling them. You ignore them. You bury them away. If you have anger, if you have frustration, if there's something that you're wrestling with, if you have deep doubt, what do you do? You just put it away. So the river actually dries up. The other option is some people say, no, you actually allow your emotions to rule you. So you let those banks just flood. Just whatever I'm experiencing at the moment, whatever my situation or my emotion is, that's gospel. No one can challenge that, and that defines reality for me. So either I ignore my emotions or I obey my emotions. But I want you to see, and as we are reflecting in our booklets, if you didn't get a booklet, you can get it as you you leave today, we've been saying the Psalms give us historically for 2,000 years a third option. As riverbanks, we are saying that the Psalms are saying to us, don't ignore your emotions and don't obey your emotions. There's a third option. Pray your emotions in the presence of God. Can I say that again? Don't ignore your emotions of 2020 and of life. And don't obey your emotions like a river without banks, but pray your emotions in the presence of God. Bring those things before Him. And that's what I want to invite us to do over the next couple of weeks into January. We're going to go into some hard hitting Psalms and ask God to come and bring the good, the bad, and the ugly before Him. Our doubts, our joys, our struggles, our triumphs. We're going to bring all of that. We want to reflect before God. So today we're going to simply ask the question, how can I stand? How can I stand? How do I remain in a year like 2020? How do you remain emotionally upright when everything around you has been falling apart? How do we do that? And to do that, we're going to look at probably the most famous psalm of all, one of the most famous one, the opening psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1. So you can open there. And I want to say that at the end of this year, I think many people are wrestling with this question, is what is it actually after this year stripped so many things from me, either permanently or temporarily, what is it that truly makes me happy? What is it that truly, not like happy, hey, like a, like a, what makes me truly happy? I think of the year 2014 when Robin Williams passed away. He committed suicide, and many people at that stage were wrestling with this enigma of happiness. Here's a man that spent his whole life making people happy, making people laugh, and yet inwardly he was so unhappy that he took his own life. And I remember in the aftermath of his death, so many journalists were asking this question, what is it that makes us happy? What is this idea of happiness? Can we truly be happy? I have a good friend who got radically saved by Jesus in his first year at university. And he would tell that at school, he would basically be drunk at least three or four times a week, and he would get into as many beds with girls as he can to soothe his conscience. But he would say this thing. He said he would never be able to be alone. He could never be in silence on his own. And he said in those moments, he would avoid them like the plague. He would ask this question, have I actually ever truly been happy? Can I ask you this morning, point blank, are you happy? Because listen to how the whole book of Psalms opens. It opens with these words, how happy is the one? And the scholars say because that is the first thing we are introduced to in this, in this psalm, it means that that is one of these dominant themes all throughout the book. Is happiness possible? And if so, how? Now, I know that a bunch of you are rolling your eyes inwardly. You can't do it because it's all that I can see, so you have to be stealthy with it. You're saying, oh, the pastor's asking, are you happy? And I am guess, you know, the answer is going to be, Jesus, right? That's what you're thinking. Like, oh, are you happy? No. Well, Jesus. Okay. It makes me think of that story. It's, you know, this young child in, uh, in Sunday school. And so the, the Sunday school teacher asks them this question. The kids, listen, what is, what's brown and furry? It has four paws, and it loves to fetch the ball. And the one boy puts up his hand, and he says, well, I'm guessing it's a dog, but because it's Sunday school, the answer has to be Jesus. And <laughs> I'm guessing that's how you feel this morning. It's like, oh, now the pastor's going to tell me for the next couple of minutes, yes, you're not happy because you don't have Jesus. Well, I want to tell you there's much, much more to this if you are willing to open up your heart. You see, when we are young, I'm not young anymore, but when some of us are young, all of us, we start with this idea that happiness is what? It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. I'm going to find that special person. I'm going to have that fulfilling job that I just can't wait to get to every single morning. You just have to be patient because happiness will be on the horizon. That's how life starts. And many people, as they get older, they move from happiness is inevitable to happiness is what? It's impossible. It's unobtainable. You get cynical about life. It's almost like the, the different ways that movies leave you. Have you found that some movies leave you just feeling like a million bucks? And some feel, you know, it feels like you've gone through the wood chipper after you've watched them. So the first movie Shay and I ever went to watch in the Kinneys in grade 10, mind you, was School of Rock. Who's watched School of Rock? Jack Black was such a great, he was like made for that role. I love that movie. And at the end, when they're singing ACDC, you know, it's a long way to the top rock and roll, that's such a, you, you feel so great, you know, everything that's happened, you're just happy, and the whole, you know, the band, and the kids, and Jack Black, you just feel like a million bucks walking out of that movie, you know what movie punched me in the gut, I chose not like a super Deborah one, but La La Land was supposed to be this like, yay, you know, they're getting together at the end, and everything's great, but in this movie, these two are like circling one another relationally, and in the end, so typically Hollywood, they get everything that they want, but they don't get each other, and you walk out of there like, you invested me in this relationship. And now I'm that cynical old man leaving the kidneys like, love, it's a joke and it doesn't work. That's how it feels. So when you're young, life is more school of rock. And when you get older, many people fall into the thing like, now. life is la-la land. It's all, it's all a joke. You cannot be happy. Now, I want to show you is that the Psalms say you both wrong. Happiness is not inevitable, and happiness is also not impossible. It is possible, but there's one very specific way to get there. So read with me Psalm 1, verse 1. It says in the CSB, how happy, say happy. Happy. Oh, goodness. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in judgment." Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So, this psalm very strongly contrasts two different ways and paths and people. And it says, The one person is like this tree that's anchored into the ground next to a stream, and it bears fruit in every kind of season. It prospers even in the difficult seasons. But it says this other person, and the contrast it's making is between someone who is walking with God and someone walking without God. It says the person walking without God, in contrast, is like chaff. Now, chaff is this little shell that you would find around the seeds of wheat, and so when they wanted to separate these two from one another, they would literally just put it in a basket. They would just kind of shake it around and kind of chuck it up and down. And these little chaff shells are so light, they're so brittle, they're almost so inconsequential that the wind just takes them away. It just separates them from the wheat. And the psalmist is saying that's the effect of this other person's existence. It just blows away. And what he's trying to do is he's trying in this metaphor to show us that the person who is anchored in God, who's walking with God, it's not because they are great. It's because of who they are anchored into. He says they have access to a kind of happiness that the other will never be able to find. Can you be, small caps, you know, H, happy without God? Of course. I know many, many happy atheists. I know many, many happy secular people, but can you be capital letters, happy, existentially happy. The psalm says no. And so what he does, he says there are two ways that most people go to. There are two places most people go to go and find that happiness. And the psalmist, he's not pulling punches. He's saying you will not find happiness there. So what's that first one? He says, number one, your happiness won't last, the psalmist says, when what? When it's based on on your circumstances. He says your happiness won't last when it's based on your circumstances. Highlight there in verse 3. It says, "He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its what? season." So the psalmist is assuming, friends, he's assuming 2020. He said, "Guess what? Life is full of seasons. And some of those seasons are summer seasons and spring seasons where things are just going your way. Your salary is booming and you're getting the opportunities and the love interest is reciprocating and things are just exciting. It's the summer season, the spring season of life. But he's saying, guess what? That's not the only seasons life has. There are some winter seasons. There are some dry seasons where things are not going your way. Where the winter is trying to rob you, where the dryness is trying to shrivel you up. And he's saying the reality is that if your happiness is based on the fact that I need to find and stay in the summer seasons, you will not find it. If life is all about those summer seasons and I'm gonna live in the summer, he says, you will roller coaster up and down like this, happy the one day, depressed the next. See, the reality is the psalmist is saying you cannot, it's impossible to cut out all of the winter and dry seasons of your life. Isn't that true? If you try and eliminate all of those things, you cannot do it. So during our two crown series, we did the beginning of the lockdown. I was reading through a book by Tim Keller. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's a profoundly good book. And he says this, he says, you know, us modern people, this is our approach to happiness. It's we try and eliminate any kind of discomfort in our lives. That's a very modern way of thinking about life. And he says this, he says, no amount of money, power, and planning can fully prevent grief, dire illness, relational betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. So what is he saying? He says, if your strategy for happiness is I'm just going to avoid the winters, he says, somewhere you are going to be so despondent because the winter will come. Winter is coming. <laughs> That's the truth. So if my happiness is anchored into the summer lasting. He says, your happiness will be so fragile. So what do we do? If that's the truth, what do we do? We do what we always do when we need answers. Where do we go? To the internet, of course. So I did this work for you. Many, many hours of intense research. Um, I found this very profound article on WikiHow. So it's going to solve it for us really quickly. How to be happy. That was my initial thought. And it was helpful because it says top six ways. So I'm sure they've surveyed literally the entire human race to get this no, it's literally the top six ways. You cannot be more happy than this. So let me give you the profound wisdom of the world in terms of how we can be happy. Things like be optimistic. Come on. Follow your gut. All right? That makes sense. Own yourself. I have no idea what that means, but that helps. Make enough money to meet basic needs. Treat your body like it deserves to be happy. That sounds profound, but I'm also not sure what that means. And if all else fails, number six, Smile. Come on, guys. So, the, you know, if nothing else, just fake it. That's pretty much what it's saying at the end there. It's like just join Pharrell Williams and just, just be happy, right? Because I'm happy. Just fake it. So just smile. If, you, if you're not happy, just be happy. That's, that's the answer, isn't it? That's profound. If you're not happy today, if, I, if you answered no at the beginning, there's the answer. Just be happy. Guys, is this the best we have? See the, the the world strategy is as long as life is going your way, you'll be happy. That's it. That's the profound wisdom that we have. As long as summer is in your life, you are gonna be so happy. But listen to what the psalmist says. He flies in the face of this. He says, Guess what? You need something deeper and more robust and more profound to shoot your roots into than simply hoping that life will go your way. You need something greater than that. You need roots that go into something so deep and so immovable that you will not be destroyed by those summer moments. Oh yes, I'm on top of the world. I don't need God. That happens just as often. And can survive the winter seasons. God, I am so down and out. I don't even know if I believe in you anymore. You need something so deep, Rooted in that. Just two, three Psalms later, David will say this. Psalm 4 verse 7. This is profound. A couple of thousand years ago that someone would write this. He says, you, God, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Do you hear that? He is so confident as just a broken, fallible man that he says, God has put such a profound joy in my heart That when I have more than enough, I realize it still lacks what I truly need. I promise you there's a horizon that you are trying to reach. There's a mountaintop that you, in your professional life, in your relational life, in your romantic life, whatever it is, you are trying to reach that apex. And someone is sitting on the top already and he's telling you, you're going to get here and it's not going to do what you think it's going to do. He's saying that when you have abounding wine and grain... He realized that God gives something more profound. And when I don't even have that, when I'm lacking, when I'm constrained, when the wine has dried up, when the grain has run out, he says, it's in those moments that I realize that God is what I truly need. He's what I want Listen here, if you're a Christian this morning, listen to me. I want to tell you that it's possible. I'm not saying it's simple. I'm not saying I get it right. I missed it many times this year. But there is a possibility for us in the Christian life that in the winter seasons like 2020, you can actually grow closer to God. That's what he's saying. Your roots can actually go deeper into God in the winter seasons. That's exactly what trees do. Go and read some of that research. It says, when it's a dry season, those trees shoot their roots even deeper into the ground to find nourishment. They are anchoring themselves deeper into God. That is what can happen. When Jesus is all that I want and need, it's no longer dependent on the season. There's something more profound that I am anchored to. But secondly, the psalmist says, your happiness won't last when what? When you have no anchor point outside of yourself. When you have no anchor point outside of yourself. He says that the happy man or woman is what? They are anchored to the ground. Do you hear that? That flies in the face of a cultural belief that all of us hold. That our culture holds so dearly. And what is that? True happiness comes from what? Absolute freedom. Freedom when no one tells you who you should be, when you can self-express and actualize exactly the way you want, when you can determine your own passion and your own truth and your own path, that is freedom, that is happiness. The Bible says no. Happy is the man anchored to the ground. Isn't that strange? C.S. Lewis, he interprets it like this. He says, it's almost like the fish who says, I want to have absolute freedom from the water. <laughs> Can't be constrained by this oppressive water anymore. And so what does he do? He jumps onto the shore and he's lying there. He's kind of flopping around. Finally free from this oppressive water. Now, is he free? Yes. Is he happy? No, he's dying, friends. <laughs> if, you're like, if you're like missing the analogy there. He's not happy. Why? Because he was made for the water. Friend, the psalmist is saying, you were made for God. You were made for God. And look at how he unpacks this. Read with me in verse 4. He says, the wicked are not like this. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. That's such a contrast. It's like this, this strong, like anchored into the ground. He says, without God, what you just literally blow away. See, when I'm not anchored into something sturdy and eternal, what happens? There will come a day when you are no more. When your life comes to nothing. When you and every single person you know will die. And guess what? Everything that you ever wrote on social media will be forgotten. Every song that you sang and recorded and you wanted to keep In a couple of hundred years, no one will know about that. Do you know who your great, 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 great grandfather is? You don't. Because suddenly life comes to an end. And maybe not when you're 15, but when you are 25, 35, 45, 55, you start realizing, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be 25 again. I'm never going to be 20 again. I'm never going to be a university student or a high school student again. Things are running out. The days of our lives, right? And when you start realizing that, not up here, but in here, suddenly the walls start closing in on you emotionally. It's like, oh my goodness, this is, this is actually quite scary. My, my life is literally coming to an end. It's this reality that dawns upon you that I'm literally just gonna blow away like the wind. And you say, no, man. So the answer is, we just enjoy it while it's here. YOLO, you know, you only live once, so let's party away. It's like, you know, it's that Fall Out Boy song where the singer says, you know, um, he says, uh, keep, the, keep, keep the party going just in case God doesn't show. That's what he says. So just in case he doesn't come, let's just have a good time. Now, I want to tell you that will work when you are 21. That will not work when you are 31 or 41 or 51. You're going to have these walls closing in on you, and you're going to realize, oh, my goodness, I'm going to blow away very soon. Probably the most famous author in history, one of them at least. Tolstoy, author of War and Peace. Listen to what he says as a man of 50. He says, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and who I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength, you know, virgin active. And yet, he says the question which brought me to the verge of suicide, is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? That's heavy for a Sunday morning, right? If your life is not anchored to something outside of you, suddenly you realize it's all coming to nothing. But the psalmist, while he has us by the jugular, he says, let me even go one further. Let me make you properly uncomfortable. And he says this in verse 5. He says, therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This is rough stuff. See, the psalms are giving us these two paths, these two people, these two realities. And it's saying the one, again, not because this person is great or moral or nice, or because they privilege, but because they are found and anchored in God, he says, this one person has a source of joy that is inexhaustible. Even when cancer comes, there can be joy. Even when retrenchment comes, there can be joy. Even when divorce comes, there can be joy. Even when in, in my house burns down, I know a family like that, strong Christian family. They come home one evening and everything they've ever owned and loved is gone. They can be joy. This is what the one person has. And they flourish even on those difficult seasons, the psalm says. And then when their life comes to an end, they stand before God and they enter into the glory of new creation. They enter not into a lesser human existence, but into a more human existence in the new creation. We see as Lewis says, every blade of grass is so intimidatingly great that you have to marvel at it. That's what they enter into. But he says this other person, he says their life is just blowing away. They have no answer for pain and suffering. They have no way to go when evil strikes their life They have no reason to give themselves to anything because it's going to come to an end. And when they die, the next moment of their existence will be standing before God and answering Him what they did with their life. And the answer is not, were you a good person? Did you go to church? Did you help old ladies across the street? Were you more moral than your neighbor? The answer to the question is simple. What did you do with Jesus? When I sent my son into history to come and, and pay and redeem and to mend your brokenness, what did you do with Jesus? And I love this. It's not performance. Because it says here, they are unable to stand in judgment. What did Jesus come to do? He didn't come to see, okay, I see a couple of people that are moral. They are strong. They are better than the rest. They are able to stand. I will choose them. No, he said, none of you can stand so I will come and stand on your behalf. I will come and die the death that was rightfully yours. I will come and live the life that was destined to you, and I will come and stand before the Father on your behalf. When I am for my Father one day, my answer will be simple. It's Jesus. It's not me. Oh man, it's not me. It's Jesus. And he says "Yeah, they are not part of the assembly of the righteous. Oh, man, if you have a bad church history like I do, you think, oh, yeah, the assembly of the self-righteous. No, but the Bible says righteousness is not the, the ones who dress nicely and who speak all the right words and who go to the right building at the right time and who give a certain percentage of their money. He says the righteous. Righteous is a biblical word that means right standing before God. There's an assembly happening every Sunday, globally, of people who come together, not because they are moral and great and perfect, but because they've admitted that they're not. And they've said, we assemble as those who found our righteousness, not in here, not Disney gospel, look into yourself. and you No, look out there, look to Jesus, he will become your righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5 says, I was not, but he was. And I put my faith and my trust fully into him, and he became my righteousness. New creation will have this one through line. All gathered there will have gathered around the throne and the cross of Jesus. Over and over and over again, these two ways are presented to us in the book of Psalms, and the simple question is, which of those two am I going to walk So one last thing that the psalmist does here. And I want to show it to you. He does a profound thing. He says, okay, so if the answer is, no eye rolling allowed, the answer is God. Of course it's God. Of course it's God. If you were made for him and by him, everything revolves. If the story starts with you, yes, maybe many parts. If it starts with God, there's one answer. But how (laughs) is the question? How do I anchor myself to him? And this is this moment where he reveals the secret. And let me tell you, he says it's not enough to simply identify as a cultural Christian. Well, my parents are Christian and my grandparents are Christian and Christian home and Christian school. That's not enough. Or to simply try Jesus for a couple of semesters at university or to go to church. How's it going with your faith? Yeah, I haven't been to church in a while, but I'm going to. Okay, so it's church. And it's not to let go and let God, you know, it's not that. He says there's something more. Go back to verse one with me. He says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Advice, what? He's talking about the way you think, about your convictions. Or stand in the pathway of sinners. The pathway, that's a reference to how you live, your path, your behavior. Or sit in the company of Marcus. So in the Jewish culture, where you sat, depended on how you identified. So that's their ancient culture, the men set with the men and the old people with the old people and the rich with the rich. It's asking about your identity. It's saying you have to shoot your roots into something so deeply profound that your convictions, your thoughts, your actions and your identity are rooted in it. And what is that thing? How do I root myself into the good news gospel of Jesus? He says it's through the word. It's through the word. It's the truth of God. He says the gospel must become such a deep anchor for your soul. Your roots have to go so deeply into the good news of Jesus Christ that in every single season, those summer seasons of victory and those winter seasons of depression, you have your roots in the truth and the gospel of God. And he says that happens in the word. So he says in verse 2, what? His delight. What a word. His delight It's in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. Friends, when I started dating Shay, and young people, let me teach you a newfangled term. It's called SMSs. Amazing technology. Who remembers those? You have to delete some things you wanted to say, because then it's going to go over into a second SMS, and you can't afford that, because you only have like 50 for the month, or whatever it is. When I started dating Shay, you did not have to force me to think about her, because my mind just went there. And when she sent me an SMS, I read it once, I read it twice, and five times, and ten times, and a hundred times, I delighted in those SMSs. It wasn't this religious burden, oh, I have to read the Bible to make myself worthy before God. I have to tick off the box on Version. oh, I'm behind there, whatever, cancel that thing. No, he says, I delight in it. I delight in it. It's like honey literally in my mouth. I delight in the Word of God. See, the idea is that God and His Word become such a delight in your life that everything of the world that is not of God literally just starts losing its grip on your heart like this. A Christian is someone who stands before God righteous but says, Now I start walking the path in the power of the Spirit to see all these claws just released from my life. You know how you do that? It's not by gritting your teeth and trying harder. It's by saying, I need to have a greater delight in something so it will displace the lesser delights in my life. It's like a tenant who comes in and says, out, 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 out. We're going to renovate. There's a greater passion coming into the space. I need not a lesser delight. I need a greater delight in my life. God says, do you want to just know me and go to church and be a Christian and be a good person? Or do you want to delight in me? Do you want me to be the greatest delight in your life? The Word is not this religious duty, this checklist. It becomes this life-giving stream. The reason many of us, many of you, let me not be a coward and say us. The reason why many of you struggle with spirituality it's because you know nothing about delighting in God. You are content. As C.S. Lewis says, God is offering you an overseas holiday, but you want to sit and play with mud pies in the slums. So, yes, God, just save me. Just don't, you know, just save me. And that's enough. Yes, that's enough. But that is just the start. God does not want to be your divine you know, consultant, he wants to be your greatest delight in your life. That's why my favorite verse still of all time, Psalm 16, verse 11. You, O God, what reveal the path of life to me. Not one day in heaven. Today, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is what? Church activities, reading plans, and many religious duties. No, he says in your presence is abundant joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. We settle for a low-grade Christianity because we settle for a life without joy in God. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the half-committed Christian is the most miserable person on earth. Why? Because he's just enough in the world to be miserable in the presence of God, and he's just enough into God to be miserable in the world. He's saying either go for it full tilt or leave it. Say, God, I don't want to have my roots just kind of scratching you. I want to be deeply found in you. And so I'll leave you with this. How do you do that? Be a cow. That's the answer. Be a cow. You see, this word for meditate, the, the Hebrew word literally means to mumble to yourself. It means someone who mumbles to themselves. So the gospel needs to be so part of my consciousness that when that thing happens in life, When divorce comes, when struggle comes, when disease comes, when the hardship comes, when the promotion comes, and when the new car, and the new house, and the new spouse, and when everything comes, I am always mumbling to myself, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It's who I am in Him, it's what He's done, it's where He's taking me, it's for His glory, it's for His purpose. I'm like this person mumbling a greater truth to myself, and the picture, I've heard someone describing this as, is as a cow that's just chewing on grass all day. When it comes to the Bible, I don't just dip into it. I don't have my little life verse. You know, Jeremiah 29 verse 11, you know, it's my favorite verse. I read it like back in high school and it's, you know, it's so deep in my heart. No, he's saying you need to delight. You need to get into the words. You know what a a cow does? It gets up in the morning, it chews on some grass and then it goes for a nap. And then it wakes up and it regurgitates that same grass and it starts chewing it again until it gets more nutrients from it and then it takes another nap. And then it wakes up again and it regurgitates that same grass and it starts eating it again for more nutrients. And that's how it keeps on going until it's sucked every bit of nutrient from that grass. And the Bible says you want to be joyful in God. You want to have a passion for God. You want to be anchored in God. Don't read the Bible. Meditate. Mumble. Chew the Word of God. Read it. Write it. Meditate it. Wrestle through it in community group. Have it on your arm. Have it in your heart. Be a cow. Can you be happy? It's not inevitable, and it's not unobtainable. It's possible. It's found in God. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be people of deep passion for you. May we be more convinced of what you have done for us than what we could ever do for you. And may your word be the anchor for our souls. May we regurgitate and chew on the good news of the gospel. Make us people of the word. In Jesus' name we pray.